Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and I'm so grateful you're listening today because we have with us an incredible pastor and thought leader, Jonathan Dodson. Jonathan, how are you? I'm great. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Jonathan is the founding pastor of City Life Church in Austin, Texas. Uh, Jonathan, when did you uh, plant City Life? Well, we got here in the city in 2006, and the church kind of got started around 2008. All right, so just about 10 years, I guess, celebrating the decade. Yeah, yeah. exactly. He's also the founder of GospelCenteredDiscipleship.com and author of the book by the same name, Gospel Centered Discipleship, as well as Raised, Finding Jesus by Doubting the Resurrection, and The Unbelievable Gospel, Say Something Worth Believing. Uh, okay, so here's the first thing I want to know, and I've, I've been dying to ask you, and I ask everybody this when I know they're from Austin. What is the deal with Austin? <laughs> like, I'm from well, Texas, okay? I mean, I'm from Texas. I'm raised in Texas. Um, but uh, when I see stuff coming out of Austin, um, it looks more like uh, when I pastored in Vermont. It, it doesn't look like Texas. Yeah. It looks like Vermont for some reason. Yeah. Most people probably don't have a homeless guy with a boob job and a tutu is their unofficial mascot of the city. <laughs> is that real? Well, it was real for years. He, he passed away a couple of years ago. But, oh, yeah, wow. he would he would walk the streets and make animal noises. And, um, yeah, Leslie Cochran was the uh, unofficial mascot of the city. Uh, we've got all kinds of weird, you know. Uh, I think we've got it first. You know, uh, Portland uses it, but "Keep Austin Weird" is the, uh, uh, you know, the unofficial slogan of of the city. And weird means a lot of things. So it's, uh, you know, it's culturally diverse, and um, I mean, just bizarre things. It's, you know, it's a thick counterculture. So you can. Uh, there's a guy we call him Songman. Uh, he rides around in this nude-colored song with no other clothes on, on a bicycle. And the first time I saw him, out of the corner of my eye, I like almost got whiplash because I like, you know, just registered and I turned around to see if this guy was buck naked on his bicycle. And uh, it, it turns out he does have a new color song on. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's weird, man. It's weird. How does that happen? I mean, it's it's sort of like, I mean, did the hippies decide to kind of pull their own Benedict option in the middle of the Bible Belt or something like that? How did yeah, how did yeah. that happen? Um, well, it, I think it goes back to really the founding of Austin. There was a Sam Houston wanted to get the papers from Austin and make Houston the capital of Texas. So he sent some of his cronies by night to break into a government office and steal some papers. And there was a brothel next door. So the lady that ran the brothel heard the commotion, realized what was going on, woke up, lit a cannon, blew it, and they ran away, and Austin is now the capital. Whoa. So it's uh, this countercultural, unexpected hero, uh, you know, kind of a mix of, you know, choose your own adventure morality. Uh, You know, it was kind of founded on this kind of countercultural impulse. And I think the University of Texas, of course, is, a great university, but has, has kind of bred some of that in the student presence. Um, and then there's the, uh, you know, the live music capital of the world. So we've got uh, a lot of creative culture, a lot of, 
a lot of diversity. And, you know, then Willie Nelson came along and he started the Armadillo Center. And he, what he did is what no one else has ever done. He fused two, like, diverse polar opposite cultures, the hippie culture and the cowboy culture, and created the hippie cowboy. So he's also kind of in, in, in the, in the, you know, in the center of all the weirdness. Wow. Um, so it's, you know, some of its creative influences, some of its historical influences, um, but it's certainly, it, it, you know, it has a strong top of field, you know, a strong sense of place, and the weirdness um, is is certainly part of that. Yeah. So, what does mission look like there? What is, I mean, what are the ways that, um, you know, you find necessary to to share the gospel? What is the you know, how do you contextualize your evangelism? How does the church, you know, live on mission in, in a place like Austin? Well, uh, there are a lot of ways to do it. You know, I mean, there's there's ways that we have done it that are more creative, uh, the ways that are less creative. You know, we, we obviously believe in the eternal, unchanging gospel, but we are in a, a changing cultural uh, context. And the weirdness keeps getting weirder. Um, and there are people of all, all phases of life. Everyone is welcome and accepted in Austin, which is one of the beautiful qualities of the city is that it's highly tolerant, um, tolerant of any belief system, tolerant of any kind of, you know, vocation or way of living or orientation. So um, people love Austin because it's so laid back and so, uh, just so accepting of people but then also presents a challenge in evangelism in that uh, you know you know anything goes uh, and, you know, your truth my truth as long as we believe it's true that's what matters most so I think um, in evangelism we have to get to the point of not just talking about Jesus but talking about Jesus exclusive claims and um, there have been various ways that that's been um, that we've worked through that. Uh, I can think of a conversation I had with a couple. Um, she was a hairdresser, all tatted up, kind of a, a typical artistic type in Austin. Um, and she was engaged to a guy who had played indoor soccer. And she was getting spiritually interested. So she got you know, some people in our church, and then um, they invited her. She came on a Sunday. And then her fiance, uh, he like broke his foot, so he had to start coming with her on Sunday morning. So he would sit there with a stolen look on his face, and you know she's like a little eager puppy, ready to hear the gospel. And uh, eventually they asked me, "Hey, would you do our wedding?" But she's a spiritual seeker. Um, he's an atheist, and they want me to do their wedding. So I said, "Hey, well, why don't we go out to lunch?" So we went out to lunch, and we sat down and uh, you know have a sandwich and. Um, I said, hey, listen, I know we're supposed to talk about marriage, and I want to get to that. It's so important. But um, can we talk about Jesus first? Because your spiritual commitments will have a profound effect on your marriage. So uh, I, you know, I looked at uh, uh, the lady and said, you know, how do you feel about it? Well, she was, she was over the moon. She was, so, she was just, you know, one of those people knocking on the kingdom, the door of the kingdom, ready to get in. So I talked to her and got her able to clarify some things. And then I turned to him and I said, "Well, what do you think?" And he said, "Well, you know, I just, I, you know, I just want to be open-minded." And I said, "Well, you know, what, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, you know, I just want to keep my options open. You know, spiritually, I think there's you know good in a lot of places, truth in a lot of places." So I said, "Well, can you, um, 
you, you've been around. You probably know this, but you know I quote from you know, different sources: uh, secular uh, philosophers, uh, you know, artists. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. You know, but you know, I mean, you know, I, I just want to keep my options open. So I said, well, um, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. Well, I said, um, so as far as I know, you guys aren't like there's not any other women hidden in the picture here. Like. You, you just want to marry her. And he's like, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> kind of nervous. And uh, I said, so, so you're saying this is this is the only one? That, that you've narrowed it down to one? He's like, absolutely. And so I said, and well, you know, if that's the case for marriage, I'd submit it's even more serious that you narrow it down to one God when it comes to faith. So, I mean, you don't get there overnight, you know. Right. But, um you know, you've got to develop relationships and you've got to be willing to uh, hear people out. But um, so the exclusivity of Christ is not something that's popular. Um, but, you know, we have an exclusive disease, sin, and it needs an exclusive cure, Christ. So uh, we do have to address those things. They're, they're not just kind of in the air. They're coming out of people's mouths. So. That's good. Uh, you yeah. wrote a book called Unbelievable Gospel. Um, I heard you speak on, um, I think, some of the the content that um, you articulate there um, at a conference once on this concept of evangelism defeaters. And so I just wanted to ask mm-hmm. you about that. What are evangelism defeaters, and what are some examples of, you know, of that? Uh, evangelist defeaters are, are thoughts or beliefs that arise in the moment of evangelistic opportunity that defeat or quiet our gospel witness. So I might be, you know, sitting there in a conversation at work with someone or, you know, with a hairdresser or whatever, and I think, oh, I should, you know, I should ask them a spiritual question or, you know, uh, talk to them somehow, something about Jesus or, you know. And and I see the opening, but then I back off because some kind of defeater comes to my mind, like I don't want to come across as preachy or... I don't want to be intolerant, or I don't want to be impersonal. So that there are these little, you know, pop-up theaters that quiet our witness because we have, I think, genuine concerns about our witness, that it not be impersonal, that it not be intolerant, that it not be uh, preachy and self-righteous. So I think it's important for the church to talk about this, because we don't. What we do is we beat the evangelistic drum and preach another message on the Great Commission, and we tell people to go share the gospel, but we don't address the real evangelistic concerns in people's hearts. And I think it's critical that we that we do that, that that we understand our congregation. Um, there are many different types of evangelistic defeaters, and I only address five in the book. But I think it's important that the, the pastors and leaders uh, ask us of our congregations, our small groups, or and listen, and then try to get as much wisdom as we can out of them. So, for instance, uh, I don't want to be intolerant. Well, that's, that's a good concern, right? Jesus wasn't the demeaning of, of other beliefs. I mean, he had it, you know, he had got red faced when he was talking to the people in his own tribe, the, the Pharisees, but he doesn't lead a campaign against, you know, uh, Caesar. He doesn't, uh, you know, have a diatribe against the you know, Greek philosophy. Uh, but there is a certain level of tolerance even in the Bible of other beliefs. Um, but, but, but it is not tolerant in the sense that it's accepting 
right? Uh, that it validates the truth. It just uh, allows it to co- to exist. So I think um, just working through kind of classical tolerance, uh, which is everyone has a right to everyone has a belief has a right to exist, and then the new tolerance everyone's belief is equally true. You, just working through that with people is can be very clarifying for them, and actually equip them in evangelism to make those points with people who haven't thought through class, classical versus new tolerance. So. Where did that come from? Your your personal working through discernment in in um, in that issue. Did you grow up in the church? Is this something that you were trained or discipled to do? Uh, did it come about just later, seminary, or or, or just pastoral ministry? Um, on the defeaters. Or? Yeah. Well, just yeah. In in general, just the the personal sense. I think for a lot of us, uh, I don't want to speak for you, but for me, you know, particular generation. I grew up in the church was trained to do discipleship a particular way and certainly had the biblical gospel and could articulate the gospel. But the way we were trained um, really kind of smacked so much of salesmanship. Um, and so, yeah. you know, certainly the Lord can use it, you know, anything. He's not, he's not snobby uh, in that regard. Uh, but these things you're talking about where, you know, you have this sort of uh, sense of personal conviction about, the way you're contextualizing the gospel or the relational context. And I think certainly there's a, a way that we sometimes use those as an excuse not to share the gospel. Um, but the way that you're talking about it, I find really healthy because it, it doesn't mean when this defeater pops up, you shut down or push through it, but you learn from it. You take the conviction from it to mm-hmm. say, well, how can I express this in a way that honors the person that I'm sharing the gospel with or, that um, speaks yeah. to their heart issue and not just to my need to, you know, have a have a witness today, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So this sense for you, uh, I mean, did it just come through experience or, or were you trained this way? Um, I, I wouldn't say that I was trained this way. Uh, you know, I grew up in a Bible Belt too and uh, came to Christ when I was six, raised in East Texas, you know, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. Like, I, I understand the religious context, you know, and I was trained, you know, kind of in a lot of the traditional evangelistic ways. I can remember, you know, being a part of a parachurch ministry and having, being told, like, you have to go out to the beach and you have to have a big tug of war to create a commotion and, <laughs> and get non-Christians to jump in and hold the rope in the tug of war. And then when it's over, you should pull out this booklet and explain the gospel to them. And that just, like, sent shivers down. Like, not not because I didn't want to talk to people about Jesus. Like, that is the most unpastable thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> so this was a literal I mean, tug-of-war. This isn't this isn't a metaphor. It was like an actual rope tug-of-war. It is an actual rope, <laughs> yes. Okay, okay. I, I've and never I, heard of that. Not, yeah, yeah. It's beach evangelism. You should try it sometime. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, so I, what happened for me is I would just kind of walk away from all the trainings I've done over the years, from stuff like that to memorizing the outline to uh, a 12-week, you know, evangelistic Bible study. And I just walk away and think, man, there's a lot of good content there, but it's got to be easier than this. It's got to be more intuitive. I mean, because I just don't, I mean, we make it so complicated. You I mean, i got to get someone to 12 sessions. Yeah. I mean, I, I gotta like 
pull out a booklet and walk them through? Why can't I just have a conversation? So I think I kind of stumbled into it, you know, kind of by reaction. Uh, just just kind of going through that stuff and then realizing there's got to be. And so I, I would just try to have conversations with people and listen to their uh, objections and uh, weigh them and learn from them and then begin to try to to retell their story with Jesus at the center of it. And I think as I'm as I bumbled around with that, eventually, um, you know, I got exposed to CCEF, Christian Counseling Education Foundation. I took some classes with them, and I began to realize like that the gospel is not just the answer. It's you know, essentially, which gospel do people need to hear? Like we can make a false diagnosis very quickly by not investigating and understanding the person's problems in counseling. And it's only through listening and hearing their concerns and watching their pattern of living and beliefs and desires that we can actually pro- provide the right kind of counsel. So is Jesus the answer? Yes. But which Jesus do they need? Jesus the advocate, Jesus the redeemer, Jesus the king, you know, Jesus the righteousness, you know, on and on and on. So I think I got a lot of gospel intelligence for practical life through that the training I got at CCF. And that made me made me much more nimble and effective um, in in evangelism actually, which you know it wasn't what it was for, but you know, it's it's all gospel ministry. So I think that was very helpful for me. Um, and I used to be a terrible conversationalist. I mean, the, the first year of our marriage, um, we would sit at the dining room table and we would have a couple over and I would have Jonathan Edwards open in my lap. This is before like phones and you know tablets and whatnot. And if I thought the conversation got boring, I would just look down and start reading. <laughs> like my poor Texas Bell wife, you know, like, I'm just checked out on the company reading my book. I mean, I, I was an idiot, you know. Um, I, I didn't know how to love people. And uh, eventually I got convicted of that and just repented and, and, and began to ask God, how can I love people better? And I stumbled into, hey, asking questions of people can lead to a lot of great places. Hey, let's take a coffee break here and hear from our host, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. 
And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, I, I think list, you know, listening is a lost art. Um, I think it demonstrates uh, our love for people, the way that um, you know, we are willing to hear their stories. Uh, to me, it actually makes, in a sense, um, the evangelistic opportunity easier. You gain, I think, some credibility mm-hmm. there by willing to, you know, to open yourself up to hear someone's story. And in, in a way, it, I think it, it makes them more receptive to them what you have to say rather than us having this sort of, um, you know, uh, I guess, you know, strategy to get certain points in and, and you know, rhetorical mm-hmm. strategy to, to kind of pin them in a corner to admit certain things and that sort of thing. Hey, so let's um, switch gears just for a second here. I want to ask you about writing because I think of you um, not just as a pastor and a thinker, um, but as a writer, someone who um, who gets the craft. Um, but I don't want to assume. I want to ask you, do you see yourself as a writer, or do you primarily think of yourself as a pastor leader and you're just trying to get information out, writing is a tool to kind of get, you know, this, um, you know, your thoughts or your yeah. resources out there? No, I, I mean, if I had a choice to do anything, it would be the right. So I, I definitely see myself as a latecomer in writing and I have lots to learn but um, I, I really enjoy writing so if I come home in the day after count, doing a lot of counseling I'm completely drained but if I've been writing a lot I'm very energized so um, I, I love the creativity I love the, uh, the freedom, uh, freedom and the uh, process of discovery you know you, you, I've never written a sentence like that ever and I didn't premeditate the sentence. Like I was writing, and the sentence came together. Yeah. You know? That 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 happening upon an expression is a, a real delight. And then, of course, the matter that, that we're dealing with, uh, you know, is I mean, the loftiest and the most profound of all matters: you know, God and His Word and how we communicate it to the world. So, are yeah, you? I, I I would consider myself a. Yeah. Are you optimistic or, um, you know, pessimistic about um, evangelicals and, and sort of the state of uh, of writing, of, of treasuring, valuing literature? Where do you, I mean, looking at the future, uh, you know, I think of you as someone who is just a great writer, but just the way you think, you're so thoughtful and discerning. Um, I, I don't use that word thought leader <laughs> like ever, um, but I intentionally used it. In your, <laughs> I intentionally use it in your intro because if I can think of anyone like thought leader, I think of, you know, like Tim Keller or and I think of you because to me it's it's someone who's actually not regurgitating the sort of common pragmatism, but someone who's who's actually looking at the culture and seems to be on on the edge, on the vanguard of, of, of what's coming. And so. Uh, I don't mean to set you up for some great intellectual answer here, but um, <laughs> looking forward, as a writer, as someone who values writing, do you think we're getting better, or, or are we getting worse? Well, I appreciate your kind words. Um, there are trends that give me pause, you know, like books and culture closing up shop. Yeah. Um, in terms of the evangelical world, uh, the the um, the way we've taken information isn't helping. You know, there's studies that show that, you know, the, the short, short form reading 
um, that is actually affecting our mind. So our, our frontal lobes, you know, are actually being reshaped by reading patterns. You can't, when's the last time, you know, you read a whole article and didn't click? You know, you're, you're kind of bouncing around in the reading process. And so I know a number of years ago they stopped uh, issuing full textbooks at Duke University in certain classes just because students couldn't keep up. So those kind of things don't bode well, I think, for writing. Uh, but I think there's always been a very rebellious writing contingent. You know, like there's always, there are always people who value ideas, and there are always people who want to work those ideas out, and that takes space and time and reflection. And uh, you know, I, I have hope that Wally is not our future. <laughs> yeah. With uh, you know pe- people rolling around in spacecraft, you know, overweight. And, drinking automatic drinks. I think, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think there, there, there's always hope. And, uh, you know, I, I, Gospel Center Discipleship was founded in part on that hope that the online resource, it, behind the closed doors, we're trying to cultivate a community of writers. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I love about uh, Hemingway's Movable Feast is that in, in Paris, he had this kind of community of writers. And they would work together to uh, sharpen one another's craft. They would uh, critique one another's work. Um, and in fact, one time they had a friend who, uh, I think he had some bills he couldn't pay, and they, they all picked him together to pay bills so he could keep writing. And there's this beautiful kind of uh, story of a community of writers dedicated to the craft, uh, dedicated to one another. And, uh, you know, Fitzgerald was in and out of that group, uh, Scott F. Fitzgerald. Of course, Hemingway himself um, and others that we would recognize today as making significant contributions in literature. So I I, I want to be a part of something like that uh, for evangelicals, and uh, I haven't got it all figured out, and I'm you know happy to join in if somebody else is, is doing it. But I, I think that that's important, and I'm committed to writing myself, but also helping others write as best I can. Yeah, yeah, I I think. Like you, um, I mean, we're both in in a way in the business of putting um, online content out, and so we're somewhat aware of you know the way that that even that format has changed over time. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the the posts are getting shorter, um, and even just the way that that information is um, is disseminated. Certainly, it doesn't just reflect the way we read, but it it begins then to shape the way we read. But um, I do have some Mm -hmm. hopes, too. I mean, I think of things just like within kind of the gospel-centered movement, um, all these young men and women who are reading, you know, the Puritans and Reformers. And um, so even though it's not necessarily, it's not fiction, it's not literature in that sense, um, but it's written with kind of a a literary style. They're writing theology in exaltational ways. And I see, you know, a little bit of kind of a rewiring uh, of the literary taste and, you know, mm-hmm. where we have, um, you know, maybe we have John Piper to thank for having guys suddenly read poetry all of a sudden, you know, all these young pastors mm-hmm. who who never would yeah. have been interested in poetry, um, but because of some of the men they look up to, um, you know, R.C. Sproul, you know, talking about his favorite book is Moby Dick and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And and maybe even, I you know, I don't know, this is just sort of speculation, but kind of the the vintage culture, the kind of hipster culture where you know that the analog 
you know, style is yeah. is big. And you see in some places like long form, um, you know, writing online is, is popular. So I, I think there's some, you know, on the horizon, there's some hope. But um, I, I tend to be as pessimistic as I am about the way things are. Uh, I try to be um, more optimistic. Um, let me ask you about gospel-centered discipleship. Um, I've been grateful for that. Um, tell me what was the impetus behind uh, the website, the resources there, and what's your vision for it um, going into the future? Well, I kind of stumbled into it a little bit there. I think, you know, our our vision is to create resources that help make, mature, and multiply disciples of Jesus. And uh, we do that primarily through writing. So there's, you know, three long-form articles a week, and then uh, we publish uh, books um, through uh, Amazon. Uh, about about four or five a year. Um, so we want to keep doing that. I mean, there's enough of a base that, uh, you know, it, it seems that we should keep doing it. Every couple of years I ask the Lord and ask the, our director, do we need to shut this thing down? Do we need to keep going? And they keep giving me the thumbs up. Um, so uh, our hope is to kind of expand kind of the, the ministry and we have a new executive de- director, uh, Jeremy Reitbull, and uh, he's, he's a great guy to be in the driver's seat at this moment. So I, I'm excited because of his kind of organizational um, leadership that, that our organization could grow and accomplish some of our, our goals. And, and the goal that, I, that that we'd like to press into over the next couple of years is kind of creating this kind of writer, writing community. So the thought is that we might have um, in different cities that people would come for a weekend, enjoy the culture of the city, be stimulated by the, the environment of the city and its art, um, and then share work and have mentors and peer reviews, uh, kind of a whole kind of reviewing connecting writing experience for a weekend uh, that kind of combines cultural engagement, uh, peer critique, mentoring, uh, wisdom to help writers grow. And uh, I'd love to to, to kind of foster something like that. And uh, so, and the Movable Feast was kind of sparked a lot of those ideas, uh, pending those Movable Feast. So um, hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll be able to pull something like that off and you know, I've, I've asked you if you'd be interested. Would love to have you um, as one of those mentors uh, at, at one of those. Um, so we're praying about it, starting to plan that direction. We'll need to raise more money. But, um, yeah, so that's one of the initiatives there. And then we just had a book come out called Renew, How the Gospel Renews You. Uh, it's kind of identity in the gospel. So That's great. Well, yeah. to me, the, the importance there or, or just the gravity behind that is, you know, you're not just putting out posts or, or articles. It, it it really is sort of a full fledged attempt to, in a way, create culture um, to contribute mm-hmm. uh, to culture, which I think is really helpful. Jonathan, thank you so much, brother, for being um, on with us. It's always Absolutely. a pleasure to talk to you. We've been likewise, sp- yeah, always a pleasure to talk to you. We've yeah. been speaking with Jonathan Dodson, and I hope you've been helped by this conversation as I was. Uh, take some time, please, to check out his books to visit. Also, gospelcenteredDiscipleship.com. Uh, you can get there also by going to gcdiscipleship.com. You will be uh, built up and blessed by what you discover there. Until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. 
You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, Managing Editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.